56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the, in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. <clears throat> As we come before the Lord in prayer, um, I'm going to pray for little Carter Olmstead. It's good to see Ryan here with Blyler. Um, Carter was in the hospital again last night, um, was not able to be consoled. And Carter's got a hernia that they're going to operate on, and we're praying that that would happen tomorrow. Um, that his lungs would be strong enough. So please join us in praying for Carter and Olmstead and for Beth and Ryan. I'm also going to pray for Grace Wade, who's looking at her first finals and she's been sick. And uh, uh, I want to pray for that young woman. Um, I want you to know that when we pray, God hears our prayers because he loves us. Um, because the throne room of Jesus, or the throne room of, of heaven, is open for us. Because Jesus is seated there. And I've got it written in my sermon, but if you don't hear it, I want you to know that in a very real way, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we're seated with him there. So that when we cry out for the grace and the mercy to help us in a time of need, God hears us. And it's not because you have done well. It's because Jesus has done well for us. So let's come before it. And pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, to say that we cling to your coat strings would be an understatement of reality. The truth is we are nothing apart from you. And yet because of you, we count ourselves as daughters and sons of the King. Father, you have proclaimed your love for us in sending Jesus. We think particularly about that during this time of Advent, but we depend on it every time we draw near to you to pray. 
And Father, we have already compared your compassion to a way an earthly father would have compassion on their children. And Father, right away, it stirs up in us angst. Because some of us have been blessed with earthly fathers who are the definition of compassion. But some of us have struggled to understand compassion at the hands of our parents. Father, you know how complicated we are as we draw near to you. And we praise you that you have said that you know how to meet us and you know what we need. And so, Father, today I'm so thankful for your word that we don't choose what to preach, but you give us your word. And you have said that your word is alive and active. And so we ask you, put your word into the depths of our hearts. Change us. Make us more like Jesus. Father, you know how many things are in our lives that make it hard for us to pay attention. We lift up Carter Olmsted to you and we ask that you would strengthen that little boy as he lies in the hospital this afternoon and this evening. We pray that you would strengthen his body and prepare him for this hernia surgery. We pray that you would give the doctors and nurses wisdom and skill. Father, we are so thankful. And we pray that you would remind Beth and Ryan that there hasn't been a time where your attention has been distracted from them, but that you are with them. Would you sustain them? Father, we pray for grace as she struggles through exams and through feeling sick, and we ask that you would have mercy on her. We thank you so much that you have blessed this congregation with so many children. Father, we thank you that you have reminded us that they belong to us. And so, Father, we long that they would grow up knowing you, knowing your word, your character, obeying you, and being consoled by you. Father, we want them to know what it means to fear you. Father, we ask that you would be with us in this season, that you would fill us with rejoicing, that you would teach us how to sing and how to clap and how to rejoice because of the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Father, now we ask you, get a hold of our hearts, the things that are concerning to us, would you allow them to put, a, put to the side that we would hear you? We thank you that you have promised to work. And so we thank you in advance for what you are doing and what you will do in these few minutes. And it's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. I always appreciate the way that Dan prays and the call to worship through the entirety of the service that, that really finds its culmination or its height rather in the preaching of God's word. And it's not because of the skill of the preacher. It's because of God's word that is being proclaimed that leads us to the table. And that's where we're headed. This is for us to be fed. Some of you will be hearing some things that you've never heard before. And our hope is that you would come to faith in Jesus there are some of us who have heard Mary's song more times than we even know. Some of you have read the scriptures 
more times than you can count on your fingers and toes. And yet, God promises to use his word uh, to build us up. I asked you to look last week at Mary and specifically her exalting of Jesus or her exalting of God, her Savior, right? I asked you to consider the way that Mary's life exalted God's might, his holiness, and his mercy, which is also known in this context of his steadfast love. I asked you to consider what it meant that Mary's life magnified those aspects of who God is. And I asked us to consider who's... What does our life magnify, right? That's what last week was about. And as we look at Mary's song this week, I'm asking you to think about it. In light of Mary's having exalted God, what is happening when she rejoices in his saving work, in God's saving work on behalf of those who depend on him? That's what I want to show you, what Mary's doing here. And I want to encourage you and me. I told you last week that I'm known in the house as the Grinch, so I've been praying all week that I would be one who rejoices more and more, and I want you to consider that we are called to rejoice in the Lord. You can just go to Philippians 1 if you wonder, is that really true? It's not just because it's Advent, but it's called, we are called to rejoice in the Lord and in the Lord's saving work on behalf of those who depend on him. And I want you to see how Mary teaches us here. How she teaches us how her rejoicing is marked by confidence. Her rejoicing is the result of of seeing God's definition of salvation. And her rejoicing is as a response of of one of those who actually fear God. Who actually depend on God. I want to become one who rejoices more. I would love for us to become a congregation that claps more. That'd be exciting, wouldn't it? Rick talked a lot when I was younger in Cambridge about low-level rejoicing. And sometimes I feel like I know that kind of rejoicing where I go, I know things are special, but I, I can complain about this. I'm not looking forward to X, Y, or Z in the next few weeks. But we had this pattern in our lives as a young family in ministry that we would go to Rick and T's house. He is the pastor in Cambridge. And right before Christmas, we would always watch Elf. Do you know the movie? Uh, Elf, Buddy the Elf, who uh, ends up in New York City looking for his father. And you go, you're kidding. Two pastor's families watching Elf right before Christmas. I know. I don't know if I can explain it. But one of my favorite scenes in that is when they're in the department store and the manager announces, hey, Santa's coming tomorrow. And, and, and Buddy the Elf, just in such great enthusiasm, goes, Santa, I love Santa, I know Santa. And I want you to know that what has just been resonating in my heart this week is that as we celebrate the coming of Jesus and as we expect his second coming, both intertwined in Advent, that you would hear of the coming of Jesus and you go, I know Jesus. I love him. Yes, he's coming. And that our rejoicing would be like the rejoicing of Mary. So let's look at these three things that she teaches us. The first is this idea of her rejoicing with confidence. And I want you to see it from the text, okay? Mary rejoices with confidence in God's salvation that he sets in motion 
with the coming of Jesus. Now remember, the only thing that Mary has heard that we understand that she's heard in Luke chapter 1 is that the angel has come and announced that Mary's pregnant and she's pregnant with one who will be named Jesus and who will inherit the throne of his father David forever and will be called the Son of God. That's what Mary's heard. And Mary, who has never known a man, looks at the angel and says, how's this possible? And the angel explains to her, and then she says, in one of the most unbelievable statements in all of Scripture, may it be unto me as the Lord has said. This is incredible. I think it's pretty incredible that Elizabeth picks up on this. Now, you know in the context, Elizabeth is her relative, right? And an older relative. We don't know exactly the, the relationship, but Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist are, are old enough that they shouldn't have been able to have children anymore. So I, I don't know how old that is, but you compare Elizabeth with, with young Mary. And listen to what Elizabeth says in verse 45 of what we just read. Blessed is she, blessed are you, Mary, is what she says. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We see Elizabeth, who's filled with the Spirit, recognizing that it's amazing that Mary believed that God was doing this. Well, the second thing that we see in our passage that helps us understand the confidence with which Mary rejoices about the coming of Christ, the Savior of the world, is that everything that she says that God has done is in past tense in this scripture. Did you read it? Look at it with me, and, and since we're just pretty much primarily looking at 51 through 55. I'll read that, but you can read it all the way starting in 47 and see the same thing. Verses 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones he ha or, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. Mary's confidence in what God is doing through the sending of Jesus with whom she is still at this point pregnant. Now think about this. There were no pregnancy tests back then. There was no ultrasound to make sure that the baby was there. Mary believed God with such confidence that God was at work that she spoke of what God was going to do with what scholars call the prophetic past. In other words, she put herself at the end of time and looked back at what God did through sending Christ. And she said, this is everything that God has done. She spoke with that much confidence. You see, this is the opposite of optimism. And this is why I put the quote in the front of your order of worship. You can look at what Henry Nouwen says of optimism in the front. But he says, optimism and hope are radically different attitudes. This idea of optimism is a desire that things would be better, right? That, that things would get better. But hope is tied to an object or an entity. Mary ties all of her hope to God and his work. And specifically his work through Jesus. You can be optimistic about the Patriots and you can be optimistic and kind of misuse the word, hey man, I hope the Patriots win the Super Bowl. Some people might argue that you're really optimistic. But here, Mary isn't dealing with optimism. She has set her hope 
on God. And she speaks with that kind of confidence. I thought about that song that we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And Jesus' blood and righteousness. And listen to this one verse. It says this, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Aaron came to prayer on Wednesday morning and said that in one of their devotions this week, he looked at his kids and he said, you know, God had not spoken to his people for over 400 years before he spoke to Zechariah before he spoke to Mary. Fifteen generations of silence. And yet what we see here is that God initiates everything with his salvation. And Mary believed it with confidence. And her rejoicing was set on that confidence. There's a member of Christ the King Church back in the old days. Her name is Tish Harrison. Tish Warren, rather, her, her maiden name is Harrison. And uh, she used to attend Christ the King in Cambridge when she and her husband were at Gordon-Conwell. Um, they have since graduated and moved on. She and her husband are both priests in the Anglican Church. And she wrote this week, and it was published in the op-ed of New York Times. And the title of her article was, If You Want to Get Into the Christmas Spirit, Face the Darkness. It's a fascinating idea that the way that you will rejoice at the coming of Jesus is to look into and embrace the brokenness of this beautiful world in which we live. Because it forces you to ask the question, in what do I hope? In what do I hope? That's the first thing that builds Mary's rejoicing and that challenges us. Are you confident in the Lord's work? The second thing I think that we learn here is that Mary rejoices in God's salvation as God defines it. And this is a big thing because I find myself wanting to rejoice in what God is doing in my life according to the things as I define them. But that's not actually what we see with Mary here. I want to show you three things of how she rejoices in God's definition of salvation. The first one is in verses uh, 50, 51. Two of them are in 51, and the next two are in 52 and 53. The first is this. She focuses on the arm of the Lord bringing this salvation. She says in 51, He has shown strength with His arm. That God is the one who accomplishes salvation with his arm. Now remember, we talked about Mary most likely not knowing how to read, most likely not having much education apart from her, her attendance of worship and her singing of the Psalms and the Psalms resonating in her mind and the other scriptures that she remembered. But Psalm 89 talks about this mode of God's salvation being his right arm. It's amazing. He himself brings it to pass. One of the verses that popped up into my mind is Isaiah 59. And I don't know if you've ever read this passage in Isaiah, but it's one of my favorites. 
And listen to how the prophet Isaiah talks about it. He looks at the world in which he lives and he says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands away. For truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And then he says this, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. His own arm brought him salvation. In Psalm 98, we actually read that we are to sing a new song. For God has done marvelous things. For with his right hand, that's what the name Benjamin means, by the way, son of the right hand. For with his right hand and with his holy arm, he has worked salvation for himself. Mary uses the language that God uses to define salvation. The second one is that he scatters. And specifically, Mary says he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This idea of God scattering people, you see it first come up in Scripture when Moses warns the Israelites that, look, in, in, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, if you turn away from the Lord, he's going to scatter you to the, to the four winds, to all the nations. But then we also see it in the Psalms, in Psalm 18 and Psalm 68, where we are told that God scatters his enemies when he comes. See, this is salvation that is God-defined, not ours-defined. And specifically, Mary prays that he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Who are those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts? I was reading this week the book of Daniel. And there's this great story, you ought to go read it, Daniel 4, about Nebuchadnezzar, who at one point in his life looks out over his kingdom and says, look at what I've done. Look at how huge my kingdom is. I've done a great job. And he spends the next seven years grazing in grass and living in the fields. God strips him even of his sanity. It's amazing. But the third thing that she talks about God's salvation as he defined it is that God turns the world order upside down. The reversal of fortunes. Look in verses 52 and 53. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The world order turned upside down. Now does Mary come up with this? Well indeed, just like everything else that Mary prays and praises God here, no, she didn't come up with this, right? We see Hannah praying in 1 Samuel 2, God, you are the one who raises up and you are the one who tears down. In Psalm 75, we see that it's God's judgment and he decides who's to raise up and he decides who to bring down. The prophet Ezekiel says in chapter 21, God exalts the low and he brings low the exalted. God in his salvation is defined by not only the arm of the Lord accomplishing it, not only scattering of his enemies, but turning the world order upside down. What's the connection? 
Those who are brought down, the mighty from their thrones, it says. It's interesting that it says the mighty from their thrones. How often do we talk about our own tiny kingdoms, our own thrones on which we sit? And how about the rich? They're sent away empty. And I think with these guys, we can put in the proud, those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What's the connection between all of them? It is the quest for independence from God. That's what it is. It's the quest for independence from God. I do not need you. You say, is that really what people think? I ate lunch with a friend on Thursday who has told me that he doesn't want to read the Gospel of Mark with me. And he said, I want you to know that if I believed in the God that you believe in, I would ask him one thing, that he would give me the power to oppose him, is what he said. It was powerful to me to see in front of my face the overt desire to be completely independent from God. And that is contrasted with whom in this passage? Those who are exalted, those of humble estate, the hungry who are filled with good things. What's the connection? Those who are dependent on God. Those who need him who rest in him, who wait on him. And you see, Jesus coming to the poor is a reversal of the world order. If God were going to save in the way that we see the world work, Jesus would have become to those who were successful and rich. Those who sought independence. But you see, that's exactly why the world order is the way that it is. Is because since the garden, human beings, we have sought that independence. It makes you ask a couple of questions, doesn't it? Is it wrong to be wealthy? Is it wrong to have power, authority? Well, you, you can't say yes because David was a king, a man after God's own heart, was extremely wealthy. Solomon, extremely wealthy. Abraham, extremely wealthy. Plenty of wealthy people in Scripture. Plenty of people with authority. But you have to ask, is there a danger to our wealth? Is there a danger to our ability to control our lives so that it's our kingdoms, our thrones? And we have to answer that question with, it is a grave danger that we ought to be aware of. And the question that maybe follows is, how do we practice dependence? recognizing that we depend on God for everything, that the wealth and the power that we have is derivative. It's derived from Him. And it belongs to Him. It is His. And in every way we belong to Him. You know, one way, if you think about what Tish was saying, is are we aware of the darkness into which Jesus came? The brokenness of the world structure. And do we long for this kind of reversal? The reversal of fortunes that those who depend upon the Lord for everything are raised up and those who seek independence from God are corrected and brought down. 
Do we long for this? Do we work for it? Finally, what makes Mary's rejoicing, the joy that she experiences, so robust? Because rejoicing is the right response of those who fear God. And I've used already those who depend on him. I want to show you how I get that. Verses 50, 54, and 55. Verses 50, it says that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And then verses 40, 54 and 55 says he's helped his servant Israel. Specifically, some servant Israel, right? In remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Who is it that rejoices in God's suffering? It rejoices in God's salvation. It is those who fear him, who rejoice in his salvation. The Apostle Paul asked the questions, who are the children of Abraham? The Apostle Paul, a, a Jew, asked the questions, who are the children of Abraham? And in Galatians 3, he answers it and he says, the children of Abraham are those who believe by faith as Abraham believed by faith. Those are the children of Abraham. Those are the children of Abraham. Rejoicing is the right response to those who fear God. What does it mean to fear God? I believe that this is what it means. To fear God is to live our lives in the presence of his character, his commands, and his consolation. If you were to search the scriptures for the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord involves being in his presence. It's not something that pushes you away from God, but draws you into him. And his very character, as Mary points out in this passage, his might, his holiness, and his mercy. But God's character continues to be fleshed out in the scripture. To live in the presence of his character and his commands. To fear the Lord is to want to obey him is to believe that he defines what human flourishing is, what human sexuality is, what it means to obey him as a woman or as a man, that he defines that. And then finally, to live in the light of his consolation, not looking for something else for our happiness and our salvation. Because his consolation for us is found in Christ who was sent for us. Advent, the coming of Jesus, Christianity, the expectation, the expectation of Christ's return is that it's God's salvation that is accomplished by God's arm according to his definition for his people, those who depend on him. That's what makes Mary's rejoicing so rich and robust that Elizabeth sees it and goes, it's amazing, Mary. It's amazing. See, sometimes we take a passage like this and we make it political and we say, finally, the haves don't have it anymore and the have-nots, they finally get their chance. 
But you see, that can't be what this is about. If God's mercy is for those who fear him, as we have defined, those who depend on him. Rejoicing in Advent. We are reminded of the not yet of the already. Right? Jesus is already raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. But as we look out into this world order, there's so much that needs to be changed, isn't there? There's so much that the church could give our lives for in service to the glory of God and the good of our neighbors, sacrificially. There's so much. And the glory of Advent is that Jesus, the light of the world, is already seated at the right hand of the Father. And we with him. I told you last week that one of the books that I love that Advent has reminded me of is The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. There was another book that I have read by a scholar named John Murray, and he wrote a book and he titled it Redemption accomplished and applied. I love the name of that book. Redemption that is accomplished. Jesus has finished it. We get to say with Mary the past tense of our rejoicing. He's done it. Even as we in Advent look in the darkness and say, God, would you continue to not just in my own heart that I would be filled with rejoicing, but in the lives and the world around me that your name would be made great. We've got a lot to rejoice about. I can't wait to spend two more weeks thinking about what it means, this coming of Jesus and longing for his return. And I hope that we understand that. That that is what we mean when we look at each other and we say, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.